Hello, bonjour and ahoy. I'm Roger Hilton, media presenter at Globesec, and welcome back to Security Hooligans, a podcast about modernizing NATO, powered by the NATO 2030 Global Fellows. On today's episode, we ruckus about the evolving cyber domain, cybersecurity, and what it means for NATO, as well as the role of the private sector in supporting allies. To unpack all of this complicated material, we have some all-star hooligans with us. Joining us from my own hood in Thessaloniki is Iona Georgia Iskadi, researcher and project officer at Digital Communication Network, Kalispera. And from Brussels, we've got Martin Tolan, strategy consultant at Gartner, is in the house with us. Guys, thanks so much for joining us right now. Thanks a lot for having us, Roger. Thanks a lot for having us, Kalispera. Kalispera. Guys, where is the time going? I mean, it's already August. Summer is moving too fast. The, what's have been going on in everybody's life recently? A difficult summer, we can say, but what happens in Ukraine, all around the world with the energy, but still hot summer, we can say, yes, what happens with the communication sector. Let's hope that the autumn will be better. And Martin, obviously, we're not from the South, so I don't know if you're melting like I am in this weather, but I hope uh, you've been up to some trouble uh, over the summer. Well, I cannot complain. Like, it's not that hot in Belgium, I would say, but uh, traveling around a lot. So uh, I really cannot complain, Roger. All right. Well, that's great. Well, guys, let's get right into it. We've got a lot to unpack. So, I mean, to say NATO has been busy, I think would be an understatement. You would all agree. As you know, you already mentioned, Iona, there's a hot war on the continent uh, and a host of other issues, climate security, energy prices, disinformation. So there's a lot of things going on that could distract NATO from the current cyber domain. But in reality, the fact is that the threats in the cyber realm are only multiplying, where attacks are trending upwards, both in sophistication and lethality, and represent an ever-present challenge. Just to start off for everybody, uh, as noted in the Madrid stomach, the strategic concept really confirms this position by stating, cyberspace is contested at all times. Malign actors seek to degrade our critical infrastructure, interfere with our government services, extract intelligence, steal intellectual property, and impede our military activities. Across the transatlantic, both in North America, there's been high-profile breaches, as everybody knows, with the Colonial Pipeline and SolarWinds, uh, and even in Canada with the National Research Council. But more recently on the continent, Russian-sponsored hackers have conducted a series of phishing attacks against NATO countries. According to Palo Alto Network's found scam email sent by cyber spies working for Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, they use Google Drive and Dropbox to avoid being detected. According to Microsoft President Brad Smith, he called the incident, and I quote, the largest and most sophisticated attack the world has ever seen. And finally, there are unconfirmed reports this week that HIMARS being used by Ukraine were cyber attacked and compromised by the KillNet and KillMic hacker groups. Despite continued investments in cybersecurity, as we know, the threat landscape remains hazardous with digital business transformations, hybrid workforces and workplaces, and interconnected digital supply chains expanding the attack services, as noted in some really wonderful Gartner research. So consequently, as unpredictable and disruptive events happen much more frequently, NATO and its allies need to continually improve their institutional resilience. So guys, let's run it. Let's get into it. So Iona, can you outline the current threat landscape facing NATO and who's perpetrating them? Well, Roger, um, the truth is that the cybersecurity domain is of great importance and has been a, a new hybrid threat. Especially what we can talk about is the invasion of Russia and Ukraine, that it's a war that deployed in two ways. One is the physical way and the other one the digital with the cyber attacks. But as it regards the current threat landscape that faces right now NATO, it's the malware, the, de the denial of service. Hackers are aiming NATO in order to bring instability and disrupt the reputation of it. 
We have seen a lot of cyber attacks, especially the last few months from state actors like Russia, and especially attacks aiming the, the states of NATO. This has been led through the unpredictability of the of Putin regime and the risk of an escalation in hostile cyber exchanges between Russia and NATO states. Also, a current threat landscape is the ransomware and spionage. We have political-motivated cyber attacks that interfere in democratic processes and political discourse. What an example is that in September 2020, the internal email system of Norway's parliament was hacked. The Minister of Foreign Affairs of Norway has underlined the significance of the attack by calling it an important cyber incident that affects the most important democratic institution of the country. What we can say about the war in Ukraine is that it had been exploded to a cyber war. The Russia aims to increase network penetration and espionage activities among allied governments. Uh, also, we have seen non-profit and other organizations outside Ukraine from Russia, especially to being attacked. And we have some Russian foreign inflation influence operations that aim to undermine this Western unity and bolster their war efforts. Especially, uh, Russia involved a cyber weapon called Foxblade that launched against computers in Ukraine. We can say that this invasion relies on a cyber strategy that includes three distinct, sometimes coordinated efforts. And what we can sum up after the war in Ukraine is that the defense and the military invasion needs the ability to disperse and distribute digital operation and data assets. So the countries need to have a better cybersecurity policy. Also, the Russian intelligence agencies have stepped up network penetration and targeted allied government outside Ukraine. So the, the threat is not only in Ukraine, but in general in the NATO member states. And Russia has prioritized government targeting. And finally, we can conclude that Russian agencies are conducting global cyber influence operations to support their war efforts. And this needs to be highlighted so as to have a better performance in the future and be better prepared. Thank you, Roger. Well, I want to thank so much for the co comprehensive overview. And it's a bit dizzying just in that short intervention, you had all of the problems that NATO and the member states are facing and the global reach of it. Um, Martin, building on what Iona said, I want to come back to you, as I mentioned in my introduction about the attack surface, you're coming from the private sector. And as I said already, you guys are doing amazing work at Gartner. So can you tell us more about the current cyber attack surface from the private sector perspective? Yeah, sure. Um, I, on a general note, I believe that the, the attack surface is inherently linked to technology, right? And technology always had its certain advantages, be it in a business context or in military context. But it certainly has its disadvantages as well. Like the more advanced a certain technology becomes, the technology that we operate, the more complex it becomes and the easier like unknown threats can, can materialize and affect it, right? And this is really the area in which in which I or Gartner operates. We we aim to provide like very objective and unfettered digital advice uh, regarding this uh, tech service. And I to come back to that, like I of course uh, in light of the evolving tech service or threat landscape, I, nobody can for 100%, I would 100% accuracy predict what the next uh, cyber big bang will look like. But what we do see, or, or what I personally see at least, is this, this rise in so-called high momentum threats. And we'll come back to uh, what this actually means or what this entails. But the problem with these threats is that they are uh, there is way less organizational awareness about them. 
and the security practices of standard organizations are not mature enough to, to handle them, then they are able to handle like well-known or more traditional threats such as phishing or malicious executables. And I, these high momentum threats to, to, to come back to that, like they're obviously connected to, to the digital future of work that we are all experiencing or the shift to cloud or whatever buzzword we want to use, but it goes a bit broader than that as well. And I would in the context of, of, of I would in a security context or in the context of, of the Alliance as a whole, I, I, I can really see three, three main threats that I, I will give you as an example. Like the first one would be I, the digital supply chain security, like the solar wind campaign that you mentioned in the introduction, in which certain malicious actors are increasingly trying to compromise uh, managed service providers, cloud providers, or even like uh, IT maintenance firms in order to gain access to their initial target, be this a Ministry of Defense, be this a private organization or whatever. And by nature, these attacks are, are very complex. They're, they're very opaque uh, in their, their techniques, uh, techniques as well. And they have the potential really to create a spillover impact uh, in numerous domains. So that would be a first one. A second one that we also see is the compromise or the increasing focus of malicious actors on, on cyber physical systems. So cyber-physical systems, they are systems that are basically designed to conduct certain physical actions without human intervention. And you can think about, for example, pumping drinking water, but perhaps in a more military context, lowering or operating a bridge or even rifling a gun. And what you can see is that malicious actors are increasingly targeting such systems with like purpose-built malware or ransomware, which does create uh, an additional threat vector, I would say. And the third one, I, that is really like forward looking, I would say it's really an emerging threat, but that is possible threats on AI models or AI applications as we are currently developing. And like I said, it's really a new frontier. So that means that most security controls or even the market to offer uh, security controls for AI models or AI systems, it's really very fragmented and we're really discovering uh, what works and what does not work. And what you can see as well is that most organizations, they still approach the development of AI systems like in a really traditional way as it was any other digitalization or cybersecurity project, which it is clearly not due to its possible implications. So I, to conclude, I would say that we really have to look beyond this, this traditional IT focused understanding of cybersecurity and really start to look more at the wider set of, uh, let us call us security exposures that are linked with the development of new technology. Well, Martin Iona, I think building on what both of you said, you we have two unbelievable perspectives. One that Iona sort of outlined when it comes to the government and the threats specifically from Russia. And then Martin, you just provided this great deep dive on the various threats from the private sector. So I think it goes without saying, you know, my brain is a bit wider after all of this. Before we move on a little bit, Iona, we spoke earlier before getting on air. And I mean, what do you make about the high Mars hack going on? Well, Roger, um, the truth is that on Monday, the HIMARS was hacked by, in Ukraine by Russia, and the, three, the threat is true. It's still going on with Russian hackers attacking this high-mobility artillery rocket system that the U.S. has supplied in Ukraine. The hacker group said that the rocket system have been responsible for thousands of deaths, helping at the same time Ukraine to defeat Russia in the cyber war. The hacker stated that Lockheed Martin, the company that manages the Hamers, 
sponsors of war terrorism responsible for thousands of deaths. And here comes also the disinformation because it's not just a cyber attack, but it's also a disinformation stating that they are responsible for thousands of deaths. At the same time, what we can see is that the governments and the private companies need to shift their, their policy from this conventional kind of war to an unconventional war where the digital technologies are leading the way in the, in the war. And through this, the NATO should establish a strategy for the 2030 strategic council. Well, I mean, it goes without saying it will definitely uh, be a, a huge blow to Ukrainian defense if they are actually able to consistently hack the HIMARS. This shoot and scoot system about, you know, reloading it in one minute and heading off has really been effective. So let's just see what the, the response is from Ukraine. And it's a great point, Ion, about it, also the disinformation angle on it. So listen, hooligans, we've outlined the current cyber threat landscape and identified some of the pacing threats. Um, as we said a little bit earlier, the role of the private sector has actually gone with collaborating with states. And it was very well reported about how Microsoft was working with the government uh, in Kiev to help repel Russian attacks. And then for all of our listeners out there, some really interesting stats coming up here. According to Gartner Research, by 2026, organizations investing at least 20% of their security funds in resilience and flexible design programs will cut total recovery time in half when a large blast attack occurs. So a lot of investment going on. Martin, I'm really looking at you right now on this question, but this is right up your alley. So can you elaborate on the growing relations between private firms and NATO and individual allies? Yeah, sure, Roger. Uh, of course, I, I won't comment uh, specifically on dedicated Gartner research, but I, what you can already see in a nutshell is that I, in light of the NATO 2030 reflection or initiative, that the alliance is already recognizing that its relationship with the private sector should evolve or change in a certain way to, to face basically the challenges of tomorrow. And I, for me, this evolution is, is partially driven by, let us say, the understanding that domains such as cybersecurity, big data, data analytics, AI, or whatever buzzword we really want to use here, are as important to transatlantic security as traditional military capabilities such as the main battle tank or battleships are. And I, just this understanding in itself already widens the scope of possible cooperation with private sector to really move beyond the traditional military industrial complex. And I, a good example of this is uh, the recent adoption of DIANA, so the, the Defense Innovation Accelerator, that really brings together various stakeholders from, from private sector, but also from academia, under this NATO umbrella uh, serving transatlantic security, I would say. And another major consequence of this evolution uh, of this understanding of the role of private sector and in general the, the digitalization of weapon systems is that we step a bit away from this traditional exclusive uh, capability driven approach uh, to security towards a more like risk-based and inclusive approach in which cybersecurity specifically becomes a shared responsibility between the vendors of certain capabilities the national armed forces that are using these capabilities and the alliance as a whole. So I, in other words, every stakeholder in this chain is responsible to protect its own systems to the fullest of its capabilities in order to strengthen the overall resilience of the alliance as a whole. And I, to conclude, I would say like the contemporary warfare or modern warfare will look 
completely different than the traditional theaters of war that we have known. So this risk-based, forward-looking and inclusive approach to security that we are gradually seeing materializing certainly will have its benefits since we are able to more adequately um, prioritize where to spend our limited resources to, the, to affect or to address basically the most prominent threats and to prioritize the capability developments to address these threats accordingly. So that would be what I would think the evolving role is uh, with NATO and the private sector. Uh, I mean, Martin, I think having worked on some of these projects that, well, uh, you know, the NATO Globesec private sector dialogues, I mean, I think now NATO is really taking the position that they really need to gang up with the private sector. And it's not, as you said, you made a great point, it's moving beyond their traditional military industrial complex. You know, David Van Deel's team in the Emerging Security Challenges Division, shout out to them. They've just done some great work, not just with Deanna, but by really recognizing all of this. And it is obviously very concerning when you see, as you mentioned, how every chain needs to be protected in the supply chains. And, you know, the deeper down you go, the third and the fourth, some companies really don't know how it is. So there's still a lot of work and a lot of exposure that can be done. Let's go back to you, Iona, for for one second. I mean, as a researcher, what specific trends do you see developing? The truth is that the private sector should uh, should cooperate with the coalition of NATO in order to have a more stable um, security system and cybersecurity policy. What? And in order to go back, what I also wanted to say that, for example, Greece, it's a little bit step behind in the cybersecurity sector. We have a lot of cyber companies, but for example, the government, especially in the post-COVID area, has immersed the cybersecurity, even though the government and the state, they need to do a lot of things uh, in order to be cyber efficient. And let's talk about the future of cybersecurity. What I see is the it's the cloud computing to have faster, cheaper, and easier to put services online and collect, and collect a huge amount of data. It's some password attacks that they will have more biometrics and leverage of additional authentication methods, evolving devices we already have in our pockets. Also, it's the AI algorithm that will be the catalyst in determining whether the industry can keep up with the threat actor community. And finally, the future of cybersecurity is that the nation states are more likely to go for after infrastructure as our infrastructures are becoming more digital. This is from me, Roger. Uh, well, I mean, for all of our listeners out there, we've really had sort of a great overview. We've had the national perspective and some of the trends that Iona sees coming. And then Martin sort of just blew our mind here on the corporate side. Um, before we get to our last question, as we're approaching our last update, I mean, Iona, Martin, what are some of the best practices, uh, you know, that you might want to suggest or things that, you know, either NATO or allies they should maybe potentially be doing more often to solidify their cybersecurity? Well, it's a good question, of course, because best practices, they will depend a lot on, on the individual security field that we're talking about. But I, we already established that you that there will be this, this increase in unpredictable and disruptive events, such as these high uh, momentum threats that uh, I just talked about. So what I really think is uh, best practice is that cybersecurity leaders, be it in organizations or be it in ministries of defense, that they really improve the resilience of their organization. And I, in a nutshell, what I mean with that, and I, I'm very well aware that resilience became this, this buzzword over the last years. But what I mean with this is that I, we generally only discuss dramatic changes in security investments or security posture 
after a certain attack happens or after we're compromised. And this can lead to very narrow responses that are only focused on uh, preventive controls. But to face really tomorrow's challenges with all this technology that is gradually developing, we cannot just only put our focus or our investments in preventive cybersecurity controls. We really need to refocus strategic efforts on building this, this forward-looking, resilient, and adaptive security program, which does require a higher level of awareness among employees or among individual soldiers or civil servants, and a certain kind of agility in, in governance structures, I would say. And this will take some time and some effort, but I do believe that it's pertinent to adequately defend against the challenges of tomorrow, basically. Well, I mean, Martin, it goes without saying a lot of what you've spoken about, it doesn't happen overnight. And the idea that, you know, NATO and its allies and even the private sector need to be more forward looking as opposed to reactive is obviously a lot of companies who get hit with attacks, they don't make it public, right, for obvious reasons. Um, moving to your side in Greece, I don't know, what do you think are some of the best practices that you would suggest to, you know, NATO or some of the allies? Well, it's important to acknowledge that it has changed the nature of military conflicts and, it and countries need to enhance the capabilities and expertise. So what I would say is it's to have a cyber crisis response team with a plan for all of the countries in order to have a common response as an alliance in future threats and be better prepared and effective. And also it's important the effective public attribution in order to have a clear understanding of the attributed cyber operation and the cyber threat actor. Also about the geopolitical environment, the allied position and the activities and also the legal context. The legal context. And I think that it's really important as a NATO alliance to have a consistent decision-making about whether to publicly disseminate information about an adversary's action or privately tell the adversary, restrict the knowledge of the interaction to the government. And what I find really important is that NATO could bring together military computer emergency response teams to share information on incident management dynamics, that it's a key factor in modern cyber defense. And it's out of great importance to build resilience, as also Martin said, in domestic critical infrastructure and strengthen the political resilience of member states by broadening the NATO consultations to include more areas of governments. And I mean, uh, that was just excellent. I mean, and as you said, keeping consistency and having a playbook is also something that it's very difficult from my end. I mean, bridging this, this capacity gap and sort of the unequal capabilities in the cyber realm through member states is also something that I think NATO is going to have to work on. So guys, I mean, this ruckus is on we ran it my last question for both of you is, i mean as i said is like do you have any final policy suggestions or speculation on what the future of, of cybersecurity will look like so let's go to you martin to start off on that one well i think it's a very good question and a very broad question as well so i i would i would refrain from from mentioning what the future of, of specific uh, emerging technologies will look like or what individual allies have to do but I, where I do see a generic, uh, let us say, an overarching point of view is the the absence or the the very uh, the difficulty to attract uh, cybersecurity talent, and that is both in individual organizations, in ministries of defense, and in the alliance as a whole. And I, for me, it's really a key challenge because it's even more topical in contemporary or future warfare where the focus is really shifting from the capability or the machine towards the person that is operating it. And I, to give you a blunt example, 
it's way harder to teach somebody how to deploy or defend against an offensive cyber attack than it is to teach them how to drive a main battle tank or how to shoot a javelin rocket. So I, for me, this capability crunch or this talent crunch that uh, I, many organizations are facing is really a key challenge. And I, it's often regarded as just like a, a problem of, of supply, right? There are not enough people that, that know something about this. But I, for me, it's a, it's a problem both of supply and demand. And you can see this right now in, in the aftermath of the, the COVID crisis, uh, which really spurred or created this, I, how I should call it, the great reflection uh, by IT professionals on what does it mean, uh, what is a work-life balance, what does it mean to, to work in a company, et cetera, et cetera. And this is already creating, uh, this is bolstering or, or incentivizing the already instability in a hyper-competitive talent market. So when it comes to, to NATO or the individual allies to really mitigate this pressure of, of not having enough cybersecurity talent or digital talent, I can see really uh, two policy suggestions, and I, they are very much focused on a from a military perspective. I would say, while there are there are a lot of different approaches that you can take to to bolstering your your cybersecurity workforce. I, these two I can really see as, as something topical for for more military context. And the first one would be to really sit down and and reflect on the importance, which roles and which skills that an individual armed forces or the alliance as a whole that they will need in the future to achieve their strategic objectives. When you do this exercise, then you can check what the market demand is, what the market supply is basically for these roles. And you can develop a realistic HR plan to get these roles and to get these cyber capabilities. So that would be a first one. Really sit down and think about which strategic objectives do we want to defend in the near future which IT roles do we need? Which IT skills do we need for that? And a second one, which is also very military specific, I would say, is that I, ministries of defense, uh, individual allies, they can do the exercise as well to reevaluate their existing processes, structures, and also their role designs to really see, uh, to really address these, um, these shortfalls or the dependencies in, in cyber talent. And what I mean with this is that like, a lot of the existing armed forces, and especially people operating within domains such as intelligence, surveillance, target acquisition, or reconnaissance, they can easily be reskilled to digital or cybersecurity talent. And while this might be expensive, it will require some effort and some time to reskill these people. You avoid going to the hyper competitive private sector market to get this talent and to bolster really your cyber capability on a national level. So for me, really, this, this, these two approaches to mitigate the talent crunch that we are currently experiencing, be it in individual allies or be it in private sector companies, that for me would be a key challenge that we, we have to address in the near future. Yeah, I mean, Martin, it's such a great point that you're saying that maybe the problem is that we're setting unrealistic goals to begin with. And we need to actually, as you said, sort of really do a SWOT analysis or figure out supply and demand of what's feasible. Because if we set this idea for you know individual allies and they can't deliver on it, it's a problem that really shouldn't have been there in the first place. Ayana, we're going south now. We're going to Greece. Uh, you know, What are your final two policy recommendations or what do you think the future of cybersecurity holds for NATO and its allies? Well, it's also a hard to answer question, but what we can say is that the wars in the next few years, it will be 
let's say 180% in the cyber war. So what the countries should do is to have a plan to be to train their the government the governments to train their the citizens to have a cyber literacy and to be better prepared for what is coming. So what I could say is that it's of great importance and to have an operational technical level joint activities uh, between the countries that imposing costs to malicious actors in cyberspace. And also to have realistic scenarios simulating the entire complexity of a massive cyber incident, including strategic decision making and legal and communication aspects. And what is important is to have cooperation because it's a common trend and we have China, we have Russia, we have Iran, we have a lot of countries outside NATO and also including NATO member countries that may that we have private companies that, and non-state actors that uh, attack the NATO countries and in general the alliance. So what is important is to have, again, as I said, a common strategy in order to be better prepared for the future threats. That's from my point and thank you. Wayne, I think it's great that, you know, you brought up as again, cyber literacy, which is something that we need to keep working on and exercising. I mean, doing this as much as possible and having a different variety of exercises that, you know, allies need to work together is all great. So guys, unfortunately, that was our last update. We have to restart now. So before we sign off, guys, the most, you know, interesting thing we want to know about it is, you know, what are you listening to? What are you streaming? So listen, Martin, I know you're not necessarily a big Spotify guy, but you know, what, what are your travel plans coming up? <laughs> I'm indeed not a, a big uh, fan of music, I would say. I, but uh, my travel plans are I quite quite interesting so far. Uh, I will be in Tallinn next week. I will be in Guyana normally at the end of the month. I hope to see you in Washington soon as well, Roger and Guyana as well. So I a lot of interesting things, a lot of interesting travel plans coming ahead. So uh, let's see what the future holds. Well, don't ruck us too much, Martin, but that sounds awesome. So enjoy the Baltic breeze uh, and all of the other trips coming up. And what about you, Iona? What's going on? What are you reading or, you know, any, what are you watching on Netflix? Uh, also, not a friend of Netflix, but currently I'm reading a, a book of Andrew Hoskin on Radical War, his new book that it's about how the wars and the digital technologies have changed the way that we that we consider that wars are being executed. Especially, uh, he he highlights that uh, war it's like the radical war. It's something different. Wars are not will not be and aren't be, aren't like this that we were used to it. And a great example is what happens now in Russia, in Ukraine with Russia. And uh, I just want to highlight that let's hope that the winter that comes, it will not be so tough that as we as we expect it to be, and that we will find uh, that we will find a solution with the energy. And also, as Martin said, I'm looking forward to see you both you and Roger in in Russia and how that this will be really soon. That's from me, and have a great summer. Well, I mean, hooligans, that was by far the most responsible and intellectual answers. Last week, we had Arthur saying he was going to be binging Borgen. So uh, glad to see that everybody's like still keeping their mind sharp and stuff. So as I said, everybody, thank you so much for joining. I'm also looking forward to the trip in Washington with more updates to come to our viewers, listeners. So listen, message us, tell us how we're doing, what you think. So from here in Krakow, uh, have a great, thanks for coming on. So everybody, guys, thanks for everything and stay tuned for the next episode of Security Hooligans.